Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. Tell me, what does it mean to be human in this particular technological moment? It can seem like conventional measures of what's true, permanent, and, well, human are up for grabs in the face of rapidly advancing tech. And if there's no special spark that truly separates us from other animals or our technological creations, does it matter? That's what we'll try to answer in our 10-part series, Being Human Now. Today, work. There are two important things reshaping the way people work today automation, and a reliance on data. We're talking about people across different industries in nearly every field, all kinds of different jobs. This isn't anything new, really. Over the course of history, mechanization has changed labor and our relationship to it. And so-called scientific management, where labor is quantified for maximum efficiency, goes back to the end of the 19th century. In the first Industrial Revolution, automation ushered in all kinds of social and economic changes. Increased production of goods, longer work hours, unionization, and migration from rural to urban areas. Now, in the face of artificial intelligence, the question many are grappling with is whether machines will replace us. But the more pressing issue may not be that these systems are replacing human labor, but rather concealing it. Take the Mechanical Turk, built in 1770. It was touted as an automaton that could play chess, and it made the rounds facing off against the likes of Benjamin Franklin and Napoleon. But the technology behind this machine was all a charade. It was presented to the public, and it toured for decades, and it delighted crowds because it looked like it was a fully operating clockwork automaton that could play chess. Now, as many of us now know, there was a person inside who was hidden in a secret compartment. This is tech critic and writer Joanne McNeil. She says the story of the mechanical Turk over two centuries ago is in some ways also that of automation today. I look around and I can't think of one instance of AI where you don't see human labor somewhere alienated from the actual product and the service. Like I said, Joanne is a tech critic, but she also recently came out with her debut novel. It's called Wrong Way, and though it's fiction, it has a lot to say about our current moment of tech-fueled gig work. It centers on a middle-aged woman named Teresa who's stuck in a cycle of precarious work. She takes a mysterious yet promising job at a tech behemoth called All Over. I was really interested in someone who had maybe what we might consider a traditional working class job history emerging in the 2020s 
into the gig economy that Silicon Valley has sort of <laughs> turned so many of these once maybe less extremely exploitative working class jobs where they are now. And so this woman takes a job through a contractor because she isn't directly employed by this company, but the company is kind of an amalgamation of a Meta, Amazon, Google, Square, uh, a lot of the fintech as well. And I wanted to show a very satirical, but also grounded in reality work experience. The company has a ride-hailing service with a fleet of vehicles. They're described as driverless cars. But in reality, the main character, Teresa, like other workers called Sears, is physically nestled in a hidden compartment of the car, making it work. To kind of play with that history of the Mechanical Turk, I, I felt like it was necessary to, to show something that absurd in terms of the surveillance relationship you'd get, the physical aspect of being that close, because most of the time when we talk about these AI underclass jobs, they are physically distant for users in the U.S. and it's a, a call center environment of content moderators working in the Philippines, like that physical distance, but then at the same time, the emotional distance of seeing people's lives quite close. You know, I, I certainly take ride hail services myself and that, that unusual experience of interacting with a stranger, what would that be like if the stranger is there and you are unaware of it. What changes in how you act in that car? Yeah, it seems to me that what you're dealing with in the book is this kind of illusion that we find in a lot of tech, which is that the idea that we're having this frictionless technological experience, but in reality, there's human labor involved in it. What's interesting to you about that? Oh, what's, what's interesting is the AI is meant to mimic a human. I mean, that, it's right there in the name. But how often are we getting AI where it's a human mimicking technology and then fed back to humans and like this extreme alienation in this, this chain of labor? And how is that going to sneak into our everyday lives? Is it possible you will have an exchange with an actual human in a call center and assume you're talking to a bot and perhaps right. more right. Yeah. curt and less than kind to this actual human? Because it's uh, remembering my days working in a call center. I just remember how rote the job was that I stared at a screen. I read a script. There was nothing of my empathy or intelligence that was brought to this experience. I was just kind of going through motions. But I am a human, so if someone had mistaken me for AI, I probably would have taken it very personally. And that's the funny moment we're in right now, that sense of distrust and confusion. And I hope that that confusion is going to lead to something productive, that the questions people are having about this technology, the, the doubts will lead to a sense of our own boundaries, where we want experiences to be authentically human and mm -hmm. noted and, and publicly recognized as such. As we were saying, uh, Teresa works 
or this sort of ride-hailing company. And there's an incident in the book involving a robo-taxi from Waymo, which is a real company with a fleet of cars in parts of the U.S., uh, where one of the cars is involved in this fatal accident. So how much inspiration did you get from the real-time developments of driverless cars in places like San Francisco when you're writing this? Oh, it's very funny that the reason I landed on self-driving cars as the technology to write as kind of part of the premise of the book is I wanted to give myself space to grapple with the technology before it was shipped. And when I started the book in 2018, I felt like, oh yeah, self-driving cars. It's way, way, way off. I've got plenty <laughs> of time here. And about the time that I was doing the first pass pages, I went to San Francisco and I could see these Waymos and these cruise vehicles. And I remember thinking to myself, well, it's right here. It's in front of my eyes. Perhaps I can think of my book as an alt history in which the technology is shipped much later. And then the grand irony is that by the time my book did come out, which was late November, that was the week that there was a huge expose in the New York Times about crews revealing their remote operator labor force. And there hadn't really been any reporting on that before. I will say that another funny thing that happened to me is I went out to Phoenix expressly to, to see the Waymos and the ride hail service that they had out there in January of last year. And I just wanted to be prepared since I assumed there would be questions to me about, well, you know, have you been in a self-driving car? And I could say, yeah. So I have been in a self-driving car, except the week that I went to Phoenix was the week that it rained, which it rarely rains in Phoenix. That's why we know has their operations there. It rained all week. And I will say that from the perspective of someone from Boston or Toronto, I would say it's very, very light <laughs> rain, but the Waymo vehicles the entire ride, I had someone in the car, not just observing the car, not just as a safety backup driver, but actually driving the whole thing, the whole thing. <laughs> I think I took a total of five rides of Waymo vehicles each time there was a driver in the car driving the whole thing. And that's when one of the drivers that was in the car said to me that he was ordinarily a remote operator and he would be in kind of like a, a little office space and watching the role of the remote operator is kind of like taking over for navigation. And for as few cars as Waymo actually has on the road, it's a huge labor force of remote operators. So that was very, very interesting experience for me. <laughs> You are listening to Spark. This is Spark. This is Spark. From CBC. I'm Nora Young, and today we're talking about work, part six in our occasional series, Being Human Now. Right now, my guest is Joanne McNeil. Joanne is a tech critic and now novelist. Her debut novel is called Wrong Way. It explores the often hidden human cost of automation and gig work. In your novel, the CEO of All Over, has the great name, Falconer, he uses this very progressive sort of techno-solutionist language throughout the book that really does feel a lot like the manifestos written by uh, Silicon Valley giants. Their ethos is something called holistic apex. So tell me a bit about what you're doing with this character. I wanted to show how little commitment Silicon Valley leader would need to express in their statements and so I thought it would be very funny to have a Silicon Valley billionaire who's not just 
necessarily claiming he's progressive, but but claiming he's anti-hierarchical while also not <laughs> giving his money away. Right. <laughs> and it, it's funny because what I think of when I have interacted with people who are very deep in the kind of Silicon Valley mindset, I always end up very frustrated. Like I can't have a proper debate with them because they will say anything to win. And so when I was thinking about writing in his voice, it was always the kind of the statements that are, are dead ends that are very difficult to argue with, like the rhetoric that just almost shuts a conversation down that he will say something like, well, antitrust is pro-capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> right. But is there a power in kind of claiming a vision of the future that, that, you, that you then kind of own and can sell? Yes, because a vision of the future is different from the vast unknown and the unknown frightens us, uncertainty frightens anyone. And when you have these kind of leaders who offer roadmaps to somewhere, that's something you at least can see. And in fact, like the other the other problem with that is you're you're arguing with their terms because if someone were to say, you know, Mars in five years, that's it. We're doing it. We are going to have life on Mars in five years. The next five years you have to argue with why maybe that's not the best use of resources, because otherwise there is this unknown. So I think it's a power of science fiction, too. And it's a power that I'm always thinking through when I write science fiction is that once you imagine something, it's a possibility. It's no longer this vague space. And with my writing, I, I don't I hope it stands up as fiction first. I mean, that is what I intended to do. But I also am thinking about the future. And, and one thing I wanted to express in this book was that it's set in the future, but it's set in a future that feels very much like now. Mm-hmm. It's set in the future of, of a moment of decline that, in, in fact, like the technologies are not getting better. The, the technologies we have today are, are kind of crumbling. The infrastructure is crumbling. And... This, to me, is that the the reality of the future that many progressive gains that we might have seen in in our recent lifetime, acceptance of, of trans people over the past decade, but now in recent years, the kind of the, the policy that is that is the clawing back that that progressive action that we can't necessarily see the future as constant wins, constant life getting better or but as as just ongoing change, including decline. Mm-hmm. You started writing Wrong Way in 2018, and it came out at the end of 2023. 2023 was sort of dubbed as the year of artificial intelligence. Obviously, a lot changed in those five year in that five year period while you were writing it. Could you reflect a little bit on the changes that uh, that we've seen in that time, especially when it comes to AI? Yeah, it, it's it's an example of how swiftly technology can be normalized. I want to say it was winter of 22 that people were even hearing about OpenAI for the first time or discovering what something like MidJourney or ChatGPT can do, that there was this very clear moment that AI all of a sudden became a very mainstream conversation while people might have followed its developments over time. I don't think many of my friends who don't follow technology would have known who Sam Alton was. And then all of a sudden, he's everywhere. And 
a year isn't enough time to discover what is a reasonable way to integrate this technology into our lives if we want to at all. And one company is wealthy and powerful, and the descent, on the other hand, is scrappy and without resources. (laughs) Something that does give me hope is that the descent is broad. I think a lot of people do have that visceral response to LLMs that I described before, that it feels like you're going through my stuff. Like, why do you need my life to be crumbled up like that and chewed out? Is there some way we could do this without that trade? That isn't a trade. It's just taking it. (laughs) Yeah. So what would you like to see included in the conversation about, you know, automation, gig work, and the human labor at the heart of some of these automated systems that we use? What are what are we not talking about that we need to talk about? I'd like to see more transparency. I mean, the, the fact that they're kind of very hazy about what the training data even is that's powering various LLMs in the case of OpenAI, transparency about the workers themselves. Why are the remote operators so hidden from the public? I mean, if they're integral to the operation of a Waymo vehicle, then their role should be much more transparent to the public. And we see this again and again. What the company is hiding from us is not just the secrets else. It's the exploitation that makes the technology possible. And if a technology is based on human exploitation, then can we safely agree that it shouldn't exist? I think Mm. You've written about content moderations and the conditions of their work in particular in this regard. Yeah, I always notice when those stories come up, because I get to a personal place. I think that like when I was in my 20s and and trying to find a job, that's the kind of job that I might have landed on. And so when I hear about these traumatized workers who might have just thought that they were stumbling on something to do in the daytime and work on music or comic books or whatever their hobbies or passions are at night, And to have not just a terrible office job, but an office job that exposes you to horrors again and again and really pushes you beyond that limit. It's so confounding. And I feel deeply that just this line of work shouldn't exist. And and how can we build social media so that kind of content moderation isn't necessary? I don't think it's impossible. I think if we talk about social media on a community scale rather than global scale. Community scale social media has measures of accountability because communities are accountable. If you have 200 friends and you invite them to a party and two people don't like each other and they get in a fist fight, you can just kick them both out. You know, it's like (laughs) you can make eye contact with them. And in some cases, the power of amplification and broadcast on social media is very seductive for, say, an artist who would like to have much more of a following and an author who wants more readers. But that's where there is a big trade-off. And I still am very interested in federated social media, ways to create elements of scale through many communities, many social networks, that operate on community scale as opposed to the global scale. But something like Facebook, if you already begin at that global scale, you're going to have these content moderators. You can't have that equivalent of making eye contact with someone and knowing that they've done something wrong and and 
and asking them to leave. Mm -hmm. And just finally, Joanne, we wanted to talk to you partly because we're looking at what work means now at this particular moment in our digital age. How do you see the future of gig work unfolding? Oh my, that's that's a really <laughs> just an easy question. question to end yeah. things off. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's work isn't something that we necessarily choose to do. <laughs> Most of us have to do it to survive, and we have a variety of possible outcomes from toxic workplaces to alienated gig work that still doesn't pay the bills. And in this moment right now, it, it feels like. A blessing just to have a job. Is it going to get worse? Is it going to get better? I think that's a little bit tricky to say because it's something that we all struggle with. And as someone who has lived in times where I did not have much free time or enough in my weekly paycheck to pay the bills, I still tried to carve out some space of my own. And I think it's like, even if it's just 10 minutes, if you can carve that little piece that is your own. It's not work. It belongs to no one else. It's just your own time. I think that's what we all can aim for. Even if it's a little bit, it's something. Joanne, thanks so much for talking to us. Oh, thanks so much, Nora. It was great to talk to you. Joanne McNeil is a tech critic and author of the novel Wrong Way. We contacted Waymo for comment regarding the use of remote operators and safety backup drivers in their vehicles, but they did not respond in time for our deadline. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, and this time on Spark, another in our series, Being Human Now, where we look at facets of human existence that we once took to be distinctly ours and how they're changing in today's technological moment. This time, the work that we do, both visible and invisible. My name is Allison Pugh, and I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. And my book, The Last Human Job, is coming out June 4th, 2024. The Last Human Job is a look at humane work, or what Allison calls connective labor. Connective labor is the work that people do to see the other and how another conveys that they are feeling seen. It's, it's really a joint interactive interpersonal exchange, you know, like the work that happens underneath that connects people. In other words, it's the kind of work that requires communication to be subtle, less direct. And the reason why I think it's important that we pay attention to that and have a word for it and think about it is because it's what many, many, many different kinds of jobs have in common. So it's underlying what nurses do, what teachers do, um, therapists, management, sales, lawyers, 
And it's something we assume that women do and that we ignore when men do it. So it's work that is traditionally called feminized, but it happens everywhere. In her book, Allison makes the case for the preservation of humane, connected labor. That work is under siege by data analytics and assessment and like efficiency campaigns and how it is under threat by automation and apps and AI. But what is it about the way people do these jobs that makes them uniquely human? So they use a a number of things that would be particularly difficult for a machine to replicate. One of my favorites was the spontaneity of the interaction. What happens when two humans get together is not entirely predictable. Mm-hmm. And responding to the opportunities that that arise spontaneously when two humans get together, that is part of the work that practitioners told me about. Mm-hmm. Another is making mistakes. It wasn't that you could make a mistake and that would make everything great. It was rather the repair after the mistake. So that recognition that you may have made a mistake is actually very powerful for the other person because it makes them realize that you're trying to see them. And what's interesting is that engineers know this actually and have started to experiment with having AI agents or apps um, make small mistakes so that it like kind of helps humans interact with them in some way. They've just been experimenting with that. So it's it's like engineers are watching to see what works here. And so why is that sense of connecting important? Like what's the value there for a teacher or someone in the healthcare professions? How long is your program? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's important for a lot of reasons. But I found that this work creates three really powerful things. Human dignity, a sense of purpose or motivation, and a sense of understanding about oneself and about the other person. Yeah. For example, there's a nurse practitioner I interviewed who said, you know, I was going to be a doctor, but then I failed out of organic chemistry. But I still kind of wrestle with ego issues sometimes. And she she tells me this story about this homeless man who came to her back bent with osteoporosis, feet gnarled with, because he was one of these kind of people who like walked for miles crossing the country, even probably never had been in a shelter, she said. And she just sat and did wound care on his feet. And she washed his feet in this moment. And she was like, probably nobody sees him. Nobody looks him in the eye. And it was a powerful moment for both of us, she told me, because I found myself saying, you are not above this. She found it a powerful moment of finding her own humility and at the same time, the capacity to have an impact in someone else's life in even this small way. Mm -hmm. And so you've previously noted that into this very human type of experience, this sort of social emotional field is the fastest growing area for artificial intelligence, which is a bit surprising. What's behind that trend? Part of it is the enthusiasm of engineers diving into new space and just and it's the, you know, kind of dawn of the AI spring and, you know, what can't we do? You know, like just the sheer sense of possibility, I believe, that it has for technophiles. 
Um, part of it is that it is kind of the new frontier that you could argue that there's been a lot of work already done in, you know, kind of more standard targets for AI, like pattern rec- recognition among all sorts of things, radiologists, dermatologists. So I, I, I I guess I'm thinking that, you know, part of it is they just want to try anything that they're going to throw against the wall. But part of it is also that this is like a new frontier, as yet untested. And I guess maybe the third thing I would say is they probably think it has some promise. Hmm. And in my view, that reflects that they don't really know what it is. Hmm. So could you give me some examples of the kinds of connective labor jobs that have experienced the most of this trend towards automation? Well, there's a lot of AI happening in medicine, we know, from IBM's Watson to all sorts of diagnostic tech. But there's a a lot of work being done to automate teaching. I, I observed at a couple of different schools that were utilizing um, apps and AI to what they call personalize education to tailor the lessons that individual students received. And yeah, and therapists, absolutely. There's uh, many different kinds of therapy bots and different ways in which apps either use human therapists, but use them in a kind of mediated sense, or they don't use them at all, or they, you know, like there's many different flavors of that out there. Yeah. And why do you think this is such a difficult thing? Why is this a difficult engineering problem? Is it because there's so much that we do with our bodies, for example, or facial expressions? Or is it the intersubjectivity that's missing? Why is that a tough problem? Well, I actually talked to a lot of engineers also as part of this project. And one of them said to me, we have a very thin view of relationship. And that is definitely true. (laughs) And I actually would say that they rely um, most commonly on like a kind of psychological view of emotions. But even the view of emotions that they use is not necessarily the one that most psychologists currently subscribe to. I mean, what I understand of current thinking in psychology is that there are not really universal emotions that we can just program a computer to recognize. Mm. So I kind of think they're doing whatever they can and relying on, you know, kind of actually this very insightful researcher was like, it's like lipstick on a pig, you know, like... He he didn't mince words (laughs) about it. Yeah. More production equals more work in my language. Yet you claim it'll make jobs easier and still get results. Sure. A man can produce more without working a bit harder. (laughs) It's going to be hard to make some of the boys understand that. I know. It'll take time. I'm Nora Young. Today on Spark, as part of our series Being Human Now, we're talking about work, specifically what it means to be a human worker in an age of increasing automation and AI. Right now, my guest is Alison Pugh, author of The Last Human Job, The Work of Connecting in a Disconnected World. So you've written that AI is sold as an answer to social problems like access, but also the issue of clients feeling judged, particularly low-income folks and marginalized groups. Can you tell me a bit more about the rationale behind that argument? Yeah, that's, 
I mean, there's a number of different ways that AI is sold, and each of them is powerful. There's one that's the, you know, AI is better than nothing. And I've talked to a lot of engineers who are like, look, we don't have great access to, you know, kind of really good recognize, recognition work, really good connective labor happening in the community clinic or the, or the public school where the teacher is completely overwhelmed, overburdened. These are, these are kind of high demand situations where people are really being stretched beyond their capacity. So they say, uh, when I produce a virtual nurse, it's better than nothing. That person gives more. So that's true. That's very powerful. That's very accurate. But at the same time, the problem is it kind of takes as inevitable the staffing decisions that we have made and tries to solve technologically what we refuse to do politically. And I find the same problem with the second better than. So one is better than nothing. Another way it's sold is better than humans. So that's kind of what you were referring to, that part of the book where I'm talking about how the AI advocates are saying, you know, humans are very judgmental and sometimes they misrecognize people. And many people that you talk to can remember that are haunted by that moment when they got bad therapy or primary care or teaching or whatever, you know, when they weren't seen effectively. And that can be particularly painful and particularly common if you are from a marginalized population where there's like a lot of stereotypes out there getting in the way of someone seeing you well. So I take those harms very seriously. I'm not like kind of rhapsodizing about human to human interaction as if it's without any problems. Mm -hmm. But the idea that because of that, we want a computer to do the counseling or the teaching seems to me a very core misunderstanding of of what's at stake here. And really, well, first of all, when you talk to therapists, they're like, you know, I know that there is shame out there. And um, the shame is actually like a, a, a tell. It is like a, a signal for where the work needs to get done. It's not actually something we just need to avoid. Right. So that's important. I, I mean, not everybody's a therapist. We're talking, I'm talking to teachers, I'm talking to primary care, I'm talking to, you know, massage therapists, not everyone's a, a counselor. But nonetheless, the idea that just avoiding vulnerability is going to be the way that we solve our problems with each other is not actually the solution. Yeah. You you also know that there's the language of freeing up human workers by automating parts of their jobs. And we hear this a lot with generative AI, right? It's going to uh. free up people to <laughs> do the, all the creative stuff and the, the AI will take care of the routine stuff. What do you make of that argument? I mean, that just drives me crazy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because in many things you read, they'll be like, we don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, yes, there'll be job disruption, but there'll also be job creation. But really, what might happen is that humans will be freed up to do more meaningful work, because AI will do the work that we don't care about or don't want to do or that is, um, you know, kind of drudgery or whatever. And the free up language, the reason why I find it a little frustrating is because it is politically pessimistic Hmm. and very optimistic about employers and capitalism, I would say. 
<laughs> because most employers in capitalism are not necessarily looking to suffuse workers' jobs with more meaning. They're instead <laughs> often looking to cut costs. Right. So when they find out that they'll be able to save considerable labor costs by ha- unloading some of that onto AI, they're not going to be like, oh, good. I'll keep the same number of employees, but my my human employees will just do all this meaningful, emotional, purpose-driven work. No, that's not how it works. They save money by by getting rid of people. You know, it's that optimism about capitalism and and actually this kind of pessimism about how there's no other way forward except through this kind of um, technophile future. Yeah. I mean, Allison, and sort of connected to this idea of automation, there's also this prioritization of data or kind of the datafication of some of these jobs. Mm-hmm. How are you seeing that happen? So that's actually a really important precursor to the automation. And that's happening even more extensively, more pervasive than the automation itself. And it's definitely, it's like a slippery slope. The example I draw upon in my conclusion is a cashier at the um, store. Now, in the 1920s, that was a man, first of all, and he stood there, you handed him a list, and he was like, oh, you need more beans for Aunt Josie. Like, he knew your family, he knew what they liked. It was an interaction. He saw you, you saw him. It was actually a form of connective labor, I think. Mm -hmm. And then about 1920 was invented the modern day of going in the shop or doing the work of actually getting the beans on them themselves and sticking it in a basket and then taking it to the front and paying for it in a cashier. Those cashiers became women. And as we all know, those jobs became more and more routinized. So it was like their words became scripted. Oh, do you want paper or plastic? Oh, do you want to donate to this, whatever? And we bleed the relationship out of that work. And then the next step is the self-checkout where it's mechanized. And who you almost feel like that's not a big loss because those are not deep relationships we're having across the cashier stand. And that slippery slope, we're at different points in that slippery slope with all these other professions. So it may seem crazy to think that we would have a self-checkout option for therapy or for teaching or for primary care, but that's the path towards automation. So that central piece is where data metrics come and the kind of delivery of like an industrial model. Yeah. And so what are the harms that are associated with that move, both for the practitioners and for the clients? Yeah, well, I want to start with the positives so that people don't think I'm a total Luddite or I don't know, (laughs) anti-socialist. I mean, I'm I'm fine with it, but um, it's more efficient. It's cheaper. We save money. Um, more, more importantly, perhaps people want to choose where they have their relationships. Mm -hmm. You often hear from busy people like, I don't want to talk to my barista. I just want to get my coffee and go, you know, to that, I would say there is research showing that people who actually talk to their baristas compared to people who breeze on by actually report higher psychological well-being, that these I don't know, not very sacralized relationships in our day-to-day lives that happen out there in the civic and commercial world, not your family, not not your close friends, you know, but just out there, those actually matter. 
and form a kind of social fabric in which we are seeing each other to some degree throughout our day. And that not only builds individual well-being, but it also promotes a social fabric that matters. So when we automate one half of that to save money or to save time, we are kind of rending that fabric without thinking about these costs. Yeah. Allison, thanks so much for your insights on this. Oh, well, thank you, Nora. Allison Pugh is a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. She's also the author of The Last Human Job, The Work of Connecting in a Disconnected World. You are listening to Spark. You think of all the robots that were like drink-serving robots that you would see in the 80s, and they were terrible. Like people, <laughs> people were desperate to use these robots right. at their robots. parties, right? Oh, yeah. like, how can we use robots anywhere? This is Spark from CBC. I'm Nora Young, and you're listening to part six of our series, Being Human Now. This time, how digital automation and datafication have reshaped our relationship to work and how we view human labor. My name is Dr. Tomas Chamorro Premozik. I'm a professor of business psychology at Columbia and UCL and the chief innovation officer at Manpower Group. And my book is called iHuman, AI, Automation, and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique. In his book, Tomas looks at what it means to be human in the age of AI and the new, possibly better ways we can express our humanity in the face of a technology designed to mimic that very thing. For instance, many of us can work from anywhere and collaborate with people who aren't sitting at the desk next to us. I mean, from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, this is really good because historically there was always something called proximity bias. You're much more likely to relate to the people who are sitting next to you. And those people typically have something more in common with you than people who are working in different places, functions, geographies. But this shift to an online work experience is also what helped build the reality we're in today. Not just the, we can't hear you, you're on mute of every video meeting ever, but all the chat message exchanges, emails sent, Google searches. In that process, we started creating or producing a lot of data. And that's the data that actually fueled AI with the possibility to both outsource or take care of some of the more boring and predictable tasks that could potentially free us up to work on more intellectually stimulating endeavors, but also actually replace us if we don't do the latter, if we just basically outsource not just our boring tasks, but even our thinking to machines. So I guess that has been the double-edged sword of AI and automation in the last 15 years or so. The workplace has always involved some sort of oversight, but Tomas says digitization of the workplace has, in some ways, altered notions of workplace consent and surveillance. We are still at the beginning of this journey, and uh, unfortunately, because when you talk about surveillance, it evokes kind of Orwellian, Big Brother-esque feelings of oppression and domination. It has a bad connotation, but it's important to also understand the potential opportunity. You know, most people would rather have an algorithm mine their emails, metadata, or content, and provide them feedback on whether they're collaborating effectively, 
whether they're being creative or not, than have their human bosses snooping on them and reading their emails. At the same time, if you want to quantify or model things like inclusion, for example, taking into account whether things like your gender, ethnicity, social class, or social rank predict how people relate to you. The only way to do this in an anonymous way and preserving people's kind of privacy, etc., is through an aggregate kind of data science, which might include algorithms. I mean, AI is no different from nuclear energy in the sense that you can do wonderful things with it, or you can also, you know, do very bad and unethical things. Yeah. In your writing, you've argued that even the creepiest AI will never be as creepy as a creepy boss. <laughs> That's true. And then on the other hand, you know, even the best AI might not be as good, as inspiring, as benevolent and as uh, valuable as a competent or great boss. So mm -hmm. it works both ways. In your book, you mention the dehumanization of workplaces that's come from the increased digitization of work life. So what is that exactly? I think, you know, it goes back a hundred years or so to the beginnings of what is usually known as scientific management or social engineering. When Friedrich Taylor working with, you know, some of the early assembly lines and factories in the US and North America more broadly, really started to look at humans as small components of a ginormous machine or cockpit, and everything started to become a vehicle or tool in the interest of productivity. And in the five or six decade that followed, actually, there was a big movement towards empowering employees, looking after workers' rights, and with that came a lot of good legislation and regulation. Um, as talent management started to become really prominent in the 1990s, we actually entered a spiritual age where things like employee engagement and thriving and, you know, career fit and talent and potential all became really important competencies. But with the rise of of big data and data analytics, which includes AI and AI surveillance, actually what you have is both things operating. On the one hand, employers all try to provide employees with a sense of purpose, uh, ensure that they can thrive and experience calling. And we hear employees and leaders saying they want employees to bring their whole self to work and to be themselves and that they're valuable for their unique characteristics. But on the other hand, underneath it, we're monitoring and measuring everything. And so I think there's still this idea that people are kind of productivity machines and that if you measure the performance and you incentivize them and you create nudges, actually they will deliver. And so even when we seem to care about engagement and happiness, actually the ultimate goal is to squeeze as much profitability and productivity of workers. And when you add to this layer the fact that people are so dependent on technology and interacting with AI and other technologies so much, there's a real need, I think, for organizations and leaders to rehumanize work and actually rediscover some of the things that actually made work interesting and valuable in the first place. Mm -hmm. Some critics have even argued that the wellness movement in the workplace itself is sort of inherently tied to this kind of level of efficiency and productivity and surveillance. There are certainly areas of overlap. So um, if you look at the recent rise of the so-called self-care movement within the wellness industry, this idea that, you know, you should care for yourself and you should look after yourself, which, you know, comes with good intentions. Go to the gym, eat healthy, don't overeat, sleep enough, take a power nap. We even have nap pots in the office, maybe, and <laughs> walk your 10,000 steps and eat your five portions of fruits and veg a day. All that is good. But if the real intent is for you to be 
really, really productive or to want to stick around work and be at the office a lot or to return these well-meaning or seemingly well, well-meaning recommendations with your hard work and loyalty, then it's normal that we are a little bit cynical when we hear this advice. And also, if our solution to the wellness issue and the well-being problems that we have seen in the industrialized worlds for the last decade or so is to just tell people that they should only worry about themselves or worry about themselves first before they can help others, that actually fosters a very selfish and narcissistic mindset. Yeah. So what would you propose as a solution to this phenomenon in order to rehumanize the workplace? Well, I think organizations should understand that the more people depend on technology to do their work and be productive, the more they have to kind of create cultures that actually provide an antidote to that and compensate for that. For example, by stimulating analog or 3D physical encounters between people, by separating between activities that might not lead to productivity, but actually enhance bonding and fueling or lubricating the social ties that people want with their colleagues, irrespective of whether it actually makes them more productive or boosts revenues, productivities and And I also think that when it comes to caring, you know, we have to remember that one of the best and I think most pro-social ways we have to enhance our own happiness and our own subjective well-being is to actually be nice and be kind towards others, right? So the less you think about your own problems and the more you try to solve other people's problems, the more your problems go away. But if I'm listening to this and I run a department and I have a, you know, bottom line that I'm expected to meet... Are some of those things in conflict with my ability to meet my productivity goals? Well, there is a tension, right? So I think, generally speaking, it is true that on average, other things being equal, the more engaged and satisfied and happy your team is, and of course, the more physically fit and energized or energetic they are, the more productive they will be. But At the same time, that overlap is less than 10%. It's a correlation of 0.3, which indicates a 9% overlap, which means that you'll have a lot of people who are extremely healthy, their well-being is great, and they're very engaged, but actually they don't add value in terms of productivity. And also that some of your most valuable, high-performing or high-potential employees are going to be quite grumpy, quite dissatisfied, and maybe have poor work-life balance and, you know, struggle in other areas of life. I mean, let's face it, historically, there was a tension between people who devote a lot of their energies, focus and skills on their careers. And because of that, neglect other areas of social or personal life. So I think you have to allow for both things and ultimately worry less about short-term results and more about the kind of culture and climate you create in your organization. Because ultimately, people are always going to fluctuate. They're going to have good years and bad years, but it's the long-term commitment to a strategic goal that actually gives you the results in the long term. Mm. Automation principles, wherever they have been adopted, have proved their value in every way. Automation increases efficiency. Workers are upgraded. The emphasis shifts from manual to mental skills. Automation improves quality. Anyone who makes anything can find opportunities to apply the principles of automation to his business.
I'm Nora Young. Today on our occasional series, Being Human Now, we're talking about work in an age of automation. Right now, my guest is Tomas Chamorro Premizic, an organizational psychologist and the author of I, Human, AI, Automation, and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique. Tomas, on the show, we've been talking a lot about the often hidden human cost of automation and the added work that laborers do to make these systems operate smoothly. But what are some of the positives you see coming out of these developments in AI in the context of work? Well, I think if we take a kind of broader philosophical perspective on this, we need to understand that AI, like any other technology or any human invention or human tool, is always something that we invent because we want to be efficient, which is a euphemism for laziness, right? So, I mean, it was fire or hunting equipment and, you know, then agriculture, the microwave, the dishwasher, and AI might be much more sophisticated. But ultimately, we do it because a lot of the tasks or things that we display or occupy ourselves on our typical kind of day-to-day working uh, routines environments are very predictable, and we actually don't feel like doing them. So I think the main positive is, of course, freeing up our effort, our skills, our imaginations for more creative endeavors. The main cost and the main problem, of course, is that when you have something like, let's say, generative AI, ChatGPT, or other large language models, that people gravitate towards and that have mass organic adoption because actually they take care of boring tasks like proofreading texts or emailing colleagues or even attending meetings that you don't want to attend, the people who actually opt in to these tools because they see that they can basically stop doing things that they don't want to do, aren't automatically motivated to then reinvest the time they save on new learning experiences or new kind of difficult, effortful ideas. You know, so I think efficiency is a double-edged sword and it can be wonderful, but at the same time, you know, if at some point we no longer need to think and, you know, we create something that is like a microwave for ideas and we stop actually thinking, our brains don't think anymore, then we have to wonder what the long-term effects might be. And so just finally, as unpredictable as the future is, maybe, what would you say are the job skills of the future in this automated context? Well, you know, I don't pretend to have data on the future. I'm always a little bit uh, perplexed when I see all these very, very granular and detailed calculations of what will happen to skills or jobs, etc. <laughs> so, you know, I think that uh, we need to be agile to adjust and adapt to whatever comes. But it seems to me that a reasonable expectation is that AI will win the IQ battle if it hasn't won it already. It will always know more about uh, things than we do, especially if you count the large number of things that can be known, even if it doesn't understand it. But when it comes to things like empathy, consideration, kindness, self-awareness, people skills, you know, emotional intelligence rather than intellectual ability, I think we have a real chance to still compete and to add value. So if you think about, you know, the manager of the past versus the manager of the future, in the past, they were appointed into a management position based on what they knew, their qualifications, their hard skills, the university credentials in the future is probably going to be their ability to inspire to connect with others to understand people and to really give them that sense of validation and kindness and attention that they will crave especially if they can't even tell whether they're interacting with a human or deep fake in some (laughs) other areas of life Tomas thanks so much for your insights on this it's been a real pleasure anytime Tomas Chamorro Premuzic is an organizational psychologist. He's also the author of I, Human, AI, Automation, and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique.
You've been listening to Spark. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Samarie Johannes, Megan Carty, and me, Nora Young. And by Joanne McNeil, Allison Pugh, and Tomas Chamorro Premizic. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.